0: you have your Bibles with us, so let's open our Bibles together in Titus chapter 2. We listen to God's Word in Titus 2, the verses 11 to 24. But I will read from chapter 2, verse 1. Now it says in God's living Word that you talk what is according to the true doctrine. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not piffering but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God of our salvation. This is the piece of scripture for this evening that's coming now. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope that appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are traveling with a car, you need two things, like in other things too, but in the car you need enough petrol and a good navigation system. If one of them is missing, you have a problem. My experience a couple of years ago was I was preaching in North Germany and when I arrived at the at the church, my tank was almost empty. And after the I returned on, on the start of the journey, I just started driving and I didn't remember... And suddenly, in a very rural area, I thought, oh, I need to get some petrol. And I drove to the first petrol station, but it was closed. And the second one and the third one, too, they were all closed, and I was very nervous. So I stopped, and I looked on my cell phone and called the petrol stations that that I could reach. And only when I knew that this petrol station was open... I started driving to that petrol station and I just made it to that petrol station before my car would stop. Back then I learned that the best navigation system can't help you once your petrol is out, once you've run out of fuel. And a couple of months ago I had a similar experience just the other way around. I had enough petrol, there was no issue, I had stayed overnight at someone at the church, and I was on my way to that new place where I could stay the night. And I forgot to charge my phone at home, and I didn't have a charger. And my phone only had 1% of battery, and it showed me where I had to go. And I was 2 k's away from the, from the place, but I had no clue where to go. And I knew if this phone would die now, I would not find the way. But praise God, 200 meters before the, the, the finish, where I saw the house in the parking lot, Uh, my phone died and I just made it. So both experience I made, enough petrol doesn't help if if my navigation system dies. And in both situations, God was gracious, although I didn't plan well, but that was not the main point here. But my main point is to show that a navigation system or a petrol is useless if you don't have the other. So, Petrol is useless without a navigation system, and the navigation system is useless without petrol. And what what is true for a car driver, it's also true for us Christians. We need a spiritual navigation system, and we need spiritual fuel, petrol. And either we have no orientation, but we have power, or we have no no strength, and we know where we want to go. So in Titus, Paul gives them a spiritual navigation system because every sort of person is talked to, every group, the, the men, the women, the, the free, the, the slaves, the young and the old, they're all told what to do and where to go. So the spiritual navigation is God's, God's imperatives, God's commands what to do. They show us where our journey is going onto our heavenly home. The problem is only, yeah, the navigation system without petrol is useless. Therefore, God's Word, directly in after that, sh- gives us the spiritual fuel for that. And this spiritual fuel is not just some sort of magic portion. It's not a spiritual exercise, but this is the Gospel. It is God's promises to us. It is what Jesus has done for us, without us, and what He will still do for us. So, if we are without commandments, we have no orientation. We don't know where to go. We need that. We need God's, go here, do this, don't do that, go this way. We need the first ten verses of this chapter to know how our lived life should look like. It makes our Christian life practical. But... In these commandments, in these imperatives, is in itself no power, no strength to follow these commandments. All The, the navigation, navigation system doesn't give us any fuel to go anywhere. And therefore, we need the gospel. We need the fuel. And Paul calls it here, the grace. In verse, verse 11, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul says here the grace has appeared. As Jesus came into this world in the, the little stable in Bethlehem, it came. But not only that, but this grace will come again. When Jesus comes a second time into this world, in the future, in power and in majesty. Um, not as a little tiny baby, as an infant, but this time as a mighty warrior on his horse. And this second appearance, we read in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have twice this appearance of the grace of God, firstly in, in, the, in the past and one time in the, in the future in verse 13. So God's word explains to us that the gospel... It explains the gospel to us in, in a double grace, kind of, in a twofold grace. Grace that has appeared to us and grace that will appear to us. And that explains to us how the grace is the fuel in this life to live for God. So my topic for this evening is how twofold grace pulls you to God. We look at three things, how grace does that. Firstly, grace gives you a new direction. Secondly, grace gives you a new a new gaze, a new direction, a new look at something, so first, a new direction, then a second view, and thirdly, a different ruler, a different rulership. So when Christ gives you his grace it 's just not not just a gift that you should be joyful about, yes, firstly and importantly it 's a grace you are a child of God. You're free. You're free of the of the judgment of death that was appearing was above your life, and although you didn't deserve anything of that, you don't even deserve not deserve it. But but you have deserved the opposite. You would have deserved the opposite. This is grace. Over that, you should be joyful. On that, for that. But God not only wants that. You are joyful, but He wants this grace to have an effect in your life. God wants that this grace will be the fuel of your life. And that's what the first verse tells us. It says here, four, the word four. Just as a reminder, the verses 1 to 10 were different commandments. They were the navigation, where to go for all sorts of people. And now He says how, Why? Not only why, but how we can live this way. Because the grace of God has appeared. Verse 11. And he says here that it brings healing, that it brings salvation for all people. If you read this the first time, it might be confusing. Maybe, does that mean that all the people of the whole planet will be saved? You could think that maybe, if you just read these verses in the Bible. But the rest of the New Testament shows us clearly that not all, everyone gets saved, but but only the one who calls upon and believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So what does Paul mean here? That this grace brings salvation for all people. Bringing salvation for all people doesn't mean for every single person. Just uh, remember that, just imagine a guest comes here today in this church service, and he asks, he would ask after church service, "Do all people come from Stuttgart here?" What he means, what he means is, do all people that meet here in this church come from Stuttgart, or do they come from the surrounding area? And the same is here. Paul is speaking of all people. He's referring to all people that he referred to before in First One to Ten. He was speaking to old and young, slave and free women and men, all these groups, for all these people, God's grace has appeared. And if we go one chapter earlier, in chapter 1, he, he describes the Crete, the people from Crete, where Paul was pastoring, and he tells that they are liars, bad people, and and lazy boys. He doesn't have a high opinion of these people, at Crete at that point. And even to them, he says, God's grace has appeared. So he says, god 's grace has appeared for all sorts of people not only jews and but also for for Gentiles, not only for people who have their things together and their 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 c i v sorted and not only for but also for people who messed up their life not only for people who 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 are believers but also people who doubt not not only he the grace of god doesn't you can't border in the grace of God. It doesn't stop at one country. It goes to the next. It, it goes over every border, every category. And it's not only a gift to all sorts of people. When Paul says it's the fuel for the new life that we get through the, new, through the grace, the first thing that this grace works in us is a new direction. The first point is that the grace Grace gives you a new direction in your life. Verse twelve says it takes us into training, and it takes us into training this grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright in the godly lives in the present age. Maybe you've heard this sentence: Christians are not better, but they're better off. The tricky thing of the sentence in the sentence is. It's true, but it's also not true. It's true because we haven't brought anything to our own salvation. We don't qualify through anything in us. It's all grace. But I also think it's problematic a little bit, this sentence, because Christians should and are people who are different to non-Christians. Christians have a new direction in their life. People who don't know God, they run away from God. They run to sin. But Christians run to God, towards God, away from sin. That's quite a different, different direction. This direction, this difference, makes verse twelve very clearly, very clear. Christians walk away from two things which they ran to before they were Christians, and they run to three things that they used to run away from. So, grace takes us into training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So, away from the godlessness and the worldly passions. So, people who don't know God, they work after these two principles. They live after these two principles. They don't necessarily renounce God altogether, but they live as if He wasn't there. They live godless, so as if there was no God. Because they don't know God, they look for their for their happiness and their fulfillment and all sorts of things in this world. That's the worldly passions that Paul is talking about here. It could be all sorts, your, your, your looks, your clothes, your alcohol, sex, pornography, food, media, whatever, TV, money, power. And many of these things, some of, many of these things are flat out wrong. They are evil. But some of these things are not evil in themselves. But they become evil. They become bad when you live them without God. And they, they take the place of God and become an idol. So Paul says, Christians run away from the ungodliness and these worldly passions. They don't walk to them, but they walk away from them. And the other way around, they run to through things that they couldn't care less about in the past. They live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So when Paul mentions these three things, he, mentions, he, he points to three dimensions of our relationships. Beso- uh, self-control means to be at peace with myself, to be in control of yourself. That's the question. Are you, are you self-controlled? And it comes again and again in Titus. And it's a very central theme in Titus. Be self-controlled. Be be mindful of that. Take the right priorities in, in, in dealing with yourself. Don't let your lusts and your emotions drive you. The second thing, or speaks to, is the uprightness or the righteousness. It's about the relationship to my neighbor. How do I treat others who are in in my life, that God placed in my life, how's my relationship to people in my family, in my church, in my work, in my school, in the uni? How how do I portray God's righteousness in my dealings with others? And the third dimension is in the word godly or God fearing, and it's the opposite of the ungodliness that we read in this verse before. It's the relationship to God. So that's... that all my life, it doesn't matter where I am, it doesn't matter what I do, to have God at the center. To practically not live as an atheist, but to live as if there is God. There is God, and He's with me, and I am responsible towards Him with what I live. So two things. He runs away, the Christian renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and three things he runs to that self-controlledness towards yourself uprightness righteousness towards the other neighbor and godly lives towards God and these this direction that Paul speaks of here is something radical it's it's a mark a hallmark of a Christian in this world in this time in this present age he means the time till Jesus comes back again so we need we we know you you know that the the speed in which we go into this new direction God gives us is not always very fast. I have a son who's very young and he can't walk yet, so he's army crawling or he's crawling. He's not very fast, but he's very slow. He's crawling. So and the second thing is. Often, he, he's army crawling to some, in some direction where I don't want him to go there. So I come after him and I pull him at his leg and basically just drag him a bit back, drag him back. And with our spiritual experience, it's a little bit the same. Sometimes, firstly, we don't run in the right direction. We're kind of crawling in the right direction. And secondly, often... My old, the old self or the old Adam or our worldly passions come and pull us kind of back. So, even if we go backwards sometimes, our, our look, our view is looking upon God, away from sin, but away onto God. And my son does the same. He doesn't look at me. He looks at the thing he wants to get to. So, if I pull him back, he's going again, going forward. So, if you're Christian if you know this grace of God your life has a new direction and to say differently if your life doesn't have a new direction you're probably not a Christian because Paul says here very clearly the grace takes you into training it 's kind of the grace you could say it 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 raises up it 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 trains us how does the grace do that when God takes his grace upon you to make you his child he doesn 't make Half things. He doesn't muck around. He takes all the sin away from you. He he saves you. But that's not all. He doesn't only come from the distance and kind of um, clears your slate and and puts away your guilt from the distance. He does that too. But he does so much more. He comes towards you. He comes and and comes into your heart with his Holy Spirit. That means that God doesn't just take away your sin. For someone that he doesn't also give a new direction, God doesn't grant his grace to someone without giving him the new path, the new direction he doesn't only become your savior unless he also becomes your 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 king, so to take the same imagery, he doesn't only give you the fuel to run and to go. He doesn't only give you the petrol, but He also takes over your navigation system. God doesn't give His grace without a change of direction. So, God's grace takes you into training. As a child of God, your life has a new direction. Not only this. So, grace doesn't give you only a new, a new final destination in your navigation system. But grace also puts your, your view your face towards that. You see a new view in your life. We read that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this verse, we see the second time, the appearing of the grace. First verse 11, we had the appearing, the grace that had appeared. And now we see the grace that will appear. So he has come as an infant, in the stable, and he will come as a king in glory. What we see here is a God that came, will come again. And both these appearances of the grace of God, the one in the past and in the future, they both pull us to God. Paul says that the future grace we await in, in the form of hope. The problem with this grace in the future is we don't, haven't experienced it yet. We don't know it by experience. We wait for it. The question is only, do we hope and wait truly? Really, ask yourself. Ask yourself, how many of your decisions last week did you decide with the thought in your head that Jesus is coming back and making everything new? How many of your decisions were motivated or, or impacted by this thought? And I suspect it's the same with most of us. It's a lot less of our decisions than more. Why is it this way? I believe it is because, in one way, we do believe in Jesus coming back. But at the same time, we kind of don't. How do I mean this? The question is, we're often quick to say, I do believe that Jesus is coming back. But the question is, does it impact your life on Monday? The more you think about this grace, the more you think about this grace that Jesus is appearing in glory, the more you think about it, the more your view, your look will be fixed upon this. I mean, just imagine you would have one le- one week to live. You know exactly Sunday, next week, evening, you will die. So you would you would hear that. How would... Your life. Look in this last week of your life. How would how would your life look? Probably, everything you would do this week, you would do in the backdrop in the knowing of your dying on Sunday. And this date of your death will determine everything you do. You will visit the people you have you loved. You will prepare things for the moment you're gone. Um, you prepare things for the time you. You you will spend time with your family. You will not waste any time. Because your your view, your look, your eyes will be fixed upon that time when you die. And this will determine everything you do. So we, we don't know when Jesus will come back a second time. But we do know that he will come. And everything that we have built up, that we spend so much time and sweat for, all of this will be gone. So why is our look our eyes so often fixed on all sorts of visible things apart from looking and fixing our eyes on that one thing that changes everything one one reason i think is that one thing what, what, we, we, we don't really believe that what is coming when he comes back is really good. We are sometimes, says C.S. Lewis, like a little child that wants to play mud pies in the dirt because it can't imagine the offer of a real holiday on a Caribbean kind of sand beach. We are far easily satisfied that's what C.S. Lewis says. That's why it's so important to work with and think about this beauty and glory that awaits us. And the more this, this, this grace will take part of our heart, the more our, our eyes will be fixed upon this future. And we will, live, we will learn more and more to live after these principles of God's future world in glory. And the future grace that awaits us, the more we look upon that, the more it will fix our eyes upon it. So to change our look, to change our view was the second point. The direction, the change of direction was the first point. And both things kind of work together because often we go towards the direction where we look at. That's why it's very dangerous to drive. And while you drive, you kind of get distracted sideways to the side, because you look there, it's dangerous because you, you automatically drive that way, and that's how a lot of accidents happen. Often we are we're going into the direction where we look, not only for driving, that's true, but also for your whole life, that's true. So, the change of direction, the change of view, there is also a third change, and that's a change that the grey stars the change grants a change of authority or yeah, we read in verse fourteen who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of for his own position who are zealous to good works, and verse thirteen. He points to the future grace, and now in verse fourteen, he points back to the grace we already know it's it 's the grace that we have experienced because Jesus Christ has given himself for us because he has died for us in the in the bible there 's many words to describe this what Jesus has done at the cross he has sacrificed himself at the cross he has given pro, propitiation, he has drunken the 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 bitter wrath of God, law of God. But here, in verse 14, are different their redeem in this verse and own possession. These are the key words here. He redeemed us, so we are His possession. This picture of redeem and possession doesn't make sense for us because today we're so against this thought that a person can be owned by someone else we can't even imagine why it would be good to be not owned by someone self by someone else but but at the time this was normal it's estimated that about a third of the roman population was slaves and these slaves were owned by someone else everyone knew someone who was a slave or owned a slave and these slaves were sold at the slave market and the owner would buy he would ransom he would he would redeem a slave at the market and they were now his his position. That's pic- the picture here that Paul uses for our relationship to Jesus. He basically says at the cross through Christ you were redeemed not with money but with his, with his blood. That's why you're his position you're Christ's position the question is only Why is that a good news? That sounds like bad news, to be owned by someone else. But the answer is, it's a good answer because no one is not owned by someone. Everyone is a slave. All human beings belong to someone. They're owned by someone. Luther has once said, either you belong to the devil or you belong to God. There's no other option. The question is not if you're free or not. In this, in this regard, no one is free. The question is more, who do you belong to? And the good news is, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you don't, you're not owned by the devil. You're owned by Christ. There's a different ruler. There's a rulership change. So there's a direction, a change of direction, a change of view, and a change of ruler. So verse 14, we can kind of boil down to Jesus gave himself to redeem you from the kingdom of the devil to be in his kingdom, to be his own possession. What do you do when you belong to Jesus? He, he describes this at the end. We are zealous for doing, for doing good works. This new identity that you have, that you are owned by someone else, this has tremendous impact on your life. As the Queen Elizabeth II, the late one, used to go to other kids as she was little, every time she got prepared to go to other children to play or whatever, her mother would take her aside and say, My dear child, remember, a royal child acts royal and acts royally. It acts like a queen. A queen's child acts like a queen. So a Christian would say, a child of Jesus will be Jesus-like, will act Jesus-like. So the queen often heeded this advice and or this this uh, command. But yeah, Harry, the prince, her son, what, her grandson, didn't really act this way. There was one story. <laughs> There was a party that was themed Africa. You could turn up in a dress that was whatever. You could be a a giraffe or or a monkey. So Harry, instead of being some sort of animal, he got himself a uniform, a Nazi uniform. He was dressing up as General Rommel, who was like the Nazi general in Africa fighting Second World War. He had a a hook, cross, all the stuff on his uniform. Just imagine, the whole media was full of pictures next day. Prince Harry in this unfitting uniform. If someone normal would have done this on a different party, no one would have cared. But Harry is the, the grandchild of the Queen. And children of the, of the royal family have to, 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 to care themselves in a royal manner. So you belong now to the king of the universe. Does that show itself in your speech and in your, in your doings? If we as children of the king follow the worldly passions and we, we live lawless lives, we're kind of spiritual Harrys. We're, we're, we're kids of the, the king. We're children of the king, but we are on back tr- bad tracks. So this new reality, that the new king that has purchased your life should determine the way you, you act. So this double, this two-folded grace works two, three, three changes in your life. A, a change of direction, a change of view, and a change of rulership. So change direction back. From sin to God, change of you from your passions and everything to Christ and a change of rulership, ruled by the devil, now ruled by God. You have no strength to do this. You need the grace of God in front of your eyes. This is the fuel for your life. This is the spiritual fuel for your life. One of the nicest stories I like in the in the, in the New Testament is the day when Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit comes down on the, on the disciples. Many people were there present in Jerusalem, and Peter had received the Holy Spirit, and he preaches to these people. It's a very courageous preaching, because he tells these Jews up front, God made this Christ, the ruler of all, sitting at his right hand. This is the Jesus that you killed at the cross. What, what Peter said was quite risky. And instead of these people trying to kill Peter after the sermon, a miracle happens. It says that the people were cut to the heart. The people wanted to know what to do. And Peter says, you need to repent and believe. And they do this. This is amazing. And this interesting thing is, what happened after this? After these people had the change of direction in their life, the change of view, the change of rulership in their life through the Holy Spirit, what do we read after that? We read that they listen to the Word of God, they have fellowship, they, they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they have, their guess, they have guests, they, they share things. Their whole life has changed. Do you see how in that practical life, things happen that we read here in Titus 2. The overwhelming grace of God has appeared to these people. God has had mercy on these people that a few days earlier had yelled Jesus to the cross. And this grace now trains them and takes them into training and raises them and pulls them to God. And it was at the time the same grace the same grace as today saves you. It's the same grace that pulls you to God today. It's the same grace that today is the fuel for your life, the spiritual fuel as a, as a follower of God. And open your heart, open yourself to this grace. Open yourself as often, as much as possible, that appeared in two, 2,000 years ago in an infant and has appeared in Christ Open yourself to this grace that will rescue you from the... that has appeared. And one day it will appear in power and majesty that will raise you and redeem you from all remaining passions and sin and will redeem you to glory. Amen.